Welcome to Voices in Health Law, the podcast of the American Bar Association Health Law Section. I'm your host, Jeff Worsberg with Norton Rose Fulbright, and my guests today are Kyle Brierley and Sammy Chang of Athene Law. We've got an amazing and interesting topic today based on the new Medicaid access proposed rules. But before we jump into that, I did want to give Kyle and Sammy a chance to introduce themselves if, if they wouldn't mind. Kyle, why don't we start with you? Yeah, Jeff, thanks for having us here. Uh, my name is Kyle Brierley. I'm a healthcare attorney at Athene Law. Uh, we're a California-based healthcare firm that uh, primarily represents providers. And my practice focuses on government reimbursement and regulatory compliance issues. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having us on as well. And just like Kyle said, I'm also a healthcare attorney at Athene Law. I'm based over at San Jose, and my practice uh, largely consists of commercial reimbursement. Well, we really appreciate you giving some time to inform us on these important rules that'll make some interesting and meaningful differences if finalized as, as proposed. So why don't we start with, with this? Can you talk a little bit about the difference between Medicaid fee-for-service and, and Medicaid managed care and why that's important? Sure. Well, the Medicaid program has two primary healthcare delivery systems, fee-for-service and managed care. Fee-for-service is the traditional delivery system where providers are paid directly by the state or the state's fiscal intermediary, and it's ran through a Medicaid state plan that's approved by CMS. Medicaid managed care involves the state contracting with managed care plans for the delivery of services, and this is usually done on a per-member, per-month capitated payment basis, and the managed care plans are then free to contract with providers and set their own payment rates. The trend has been going away from fee-for-service and towards managed care. The last number I saw was uh, approximately 72% of Medicaid beneficiaries are on a managed care plan now, and the remaining are on still on fee-for-service. And so turning then to the new proposed rules, talk about why they're, they're necessary. And do these then, are they just about Medicaid managed care? Sure. So these proposed rules come from a policy push from the Biden administration. The administration has issued multiple executive orders trying to strengthen the Medicaid program and access to the Medicaid program. So this policy push, they really, the administration is looking at access in three main buckets. The first is enrollment and coverage. The second is maintenance of coverage. And then the third is the actual access to services and to supports by the Medicaid beneficiaries. So last year, we saw a proposed rule that was issued by CMS that dealt with enrollment and maintenance of coverage and try to streamline those processes, particularly because the redeterminations have started and there's going to be a large number of beneficiaries who are going to be off the rolls because they no longer meet the eligibility requirements. And now we have two new proposed rules that were issued last month that focus primarily on Medicaid managed care, though we will talk a little bit today about some of the fee-for-service provisions as well. And these rules are intended to strengthen access to care and services for Medicaid beneficiaries. And they're doing this through rate setting, transparency, and for the managed care side through network adequacy standards. You know, you mentioned rate setting. Can, can you talk a little bit about the link between rate setting and, and access? Yeah, there's a direct link between the amount that a physician is paid and the willingness or ability for that physician to accept Medicaid beneficiaries. I think anecdotally, we know this to be true that it's harder for Medicaid beneficiaries to sometimes find the care that they need. And the, the numbers back that up. 
the most recent data we have is from 2021 that physicians are much less likely to accept new patients if they're on Medicaid than if they're on uh, Medicare or private insurance. In fact, only 74% of physicians accept new Medicaid patients compared to 96% of patients that are on private insurance. And I think it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that the more Medicaid pays a physician, the more likely they are to accept Medicaid beneficiaries. And when we're looking at the numbers, Medicaid pays far less than any of the other insurances. So then turning to the legal standards surrounding access and, and rate setting, can you can you talk about those for both managed care and for fee-for-service? Yeah, I can go first with managed care here. So for managed care, the MCOs, which is the managed care organizations, they have to continuously demonstrate that they have adequate network capacity, that they have the services by providing these assurances to both the state and CMS. And that, at least up until this proposed rule, there hasn't been much about what the payment rate should be. So unlike fee-for-service where there's a set rate, managed care organizations, as Kyle has mentioned before, get these capitated rates, and then the managed care organizations can negotiate uh, various provider rates. So it's not clear, although we know generally that Medicaid does pay less, it's not clear geographically or in certain areas if they're being, if providers are being paid even less so compared to some of their other counterparts. And so this proposed rule is going to be really interesting to see because it's going to take the first step at least in managed care, to determine what that payment rate is. And for the fee-for-service side, states are required to set their rates that are sufficient enough to enlist enough providers so that Medicare beneficiaries have access to the same level of care and services that the general population has in their geographic region. And and seeking on fee-for-service, how does CMS currently ensure that those fee-for-service access standards are, are being met? So in 2016, uh, CMS started requiring states to submit what they call access monitoring review plans, or AMRPs. And these are submitted by the states every three years, and they require the states to do a very detailed review of criteria that is a little vague and that is not necessarily based on uniform standards between the states. One of the things they are required to do right now is to look at their Medicaid rates and compared to the public rates and private insurance rates as well. CMS has determined that this has been a very hard thing to enforce and it's not been very worthwhile because these standards that they're using are, are so vague and it places such a burden on these states and it's hard to review one state's AMRP compared to another state's AMRP. And this is particularly true for uh, states that have a high managed care population, which is the majority of states. It really places a burden on these states when their fee-for-service rates are only going to affect a small portion of their population. So this proposed rule now does away with AMRPs, and it replaces it with two different things. One is rate transparency. So every state now will be required to publish their rates on public state website. And second is a comparison of Medicaid rates compared to Medicare rates. Now, we know that the 
Medicaid rates in general are only about 72% of the Medicare rates. So this should put out in the open for everyone to see how much lower these rates are compared to what Medicare pays. And this is focusing on a, a few different benefit categories. One is primary care services, two is obstetrics and gynecological services, and then three is outpatient behavioral health. And they're looking at the uh, rates paid for the fee schedules uh, for the evaluation management codes for these benefit categories. So the idea is that we're looking at primarily these primary care services and, and these lower acuity services, and if that if we can get the rates up for those types of services, then the access will be greater for the Medicaid beneficiaries and they will be able to access these services so that they won't have to use hospital and inpatient stays in the future. And so we talked earlier, we touched on the difference between fee-for-service and and managed care. How are the managed care rate setting proposals different? Yeah. So it's interesting because as Kyle kind of previewed here, it's it's been difficult to exactly nail down what this network accuracy standard should be. And one of the things that CMS has realized is there's no standard comprehensive data source to evaluate what the payment rates are across these particular medical specialties or health plans or states. And unlike fee-for-service where there is a particular set schedule, like I mentioned before, there isn't quite one for managed care. And so what CMS is proposing for managed care plans is that they're going to have to submit some payment analysis showing their level of payment. And this is kind of a first step to just figure out how low these payments are. And it's going to be an interesting implementation if it does get passed, because these MCOs, these plans are going to have to use pay claims data from the immediate prior rating period. And they only have 180 days to do this. So what they're gonna have to do is they're gonna have to pull out the total amount paid for certain CPT codes for the same specialty that Kyle mentioned, which was primary care, OBGYN, and mental health and substance use disorder services. And with these, they're gonna figure out what the total amount paid for each of these are. And then they're gonna have to divide that by 100% of the published Medicare rate or the Medicaid fee for service, depending on what's appropriate. And they're gonna have to provide that to the states for the states to review as part of their assurances to CMS, denoting that they do have adequate network. That's a great transition point. How do the proposed rules change how CMS would determine network adequacy for these Medicaid managed care plans? Yeah, so there's going to be three of them. So I I think we're going to have to take them one by one just because they're pretty dense. The first one is going to be changes in provider directory. And then the second one is going to be new appointment wait time standards. And the third one, to really make sure that these are all implemented, CMS is going to implement a secret shopper survey. So yeah, let's break those down one, one by one. Let's start with provider directories. You know, what is that? And what are they trying to change? Yeah, so a provider directory is something that each managed care organization has to have. So they have to have the identity, the address, and the availability of these healthcare providers that participate in their network. While these provider directories are there, there's sometimes paper copies as well as electronic. So you might get the yellow pages, physical yellow pages of all of these providers. But what CMS and studies are finding out is these provider directories aren't always accurate. 
you're going to have a directory and you're going to say, oh, provider A is on here. So I'm going to call provider A. Provider A tells you, hey, I'm on there, but I can't take new patients. Or you call provider A and all of a sudden their phone is disconnected or they retired. And even though these provider directories are supposed to be kept up to date, we're finding out that that's not quite true. And so one of the first things that CMS is going to do is make these provider directories searchable. So if you have a certain provider that you want, then they should be able to search it. It shouldn't be where you have to go one by one and be like, okay, does this work or does this work? These directories should be searchable to allow patients to easily find a certain provider. In addition to that, with the rise of telehealth that we've seen from the COVID-19 pandemic, CMS wants to denote which providers are offering these via telehealth. So CMS is gonna require that to also be included. And when we talk a little bit later about secret shoppers, these secret shoppers are gonna be able to validate what these provider directories have. You, you also mentioned new appointment wait time standards. Can you tell me what those new standards would be? Yeah, I think like Kyle had kind of talked about, there needs to be a little bit of a history lesson that comes with this. And CMS has really struggled in trying to figure out what the right network adequacy standards should be. So back before 2016, CMS had just allowed the states to say, look, we have an adequate network. And that was all you really needed, basically. In 2016, CMS realized that wasn't working. So they included the requirement that states develop these time and distance standards. And then in 2020, they flipped backwards and said, whoa, this, this is not working for the states. When the states try to do this, they're finding out it's not working as well because it seems overly prescriptive to just say, you need to have X amount of providers in 30 miles or X amount of providers available for 30 minutes. So instead they introduced something called quantitative network adequacy standards, which is a long way of saying, go back to what the original was, here are a list of options. You can do provider enrollee ratio. You can do travel time or distance. You can do minimum percentage of contract providers. You have these options, states, so pick which one you want. And now fast forward to today, CMS is finding out that's not quite working as well either. Instead, they're going to have to go back to this time and distance standard by saying, look, you need to have certain appointment wait times. And so these appointment wait times our maximum appointment wait times. So for outpatient mental health and substance use disorder appointments, they're gonna be only waiting a maximum of 10 business days. For primary care appointments, enrollees should only wait 15 business days. And that's the same for OBGYN for 15 business days. Now CMS has given, again, that flexibility to states to say, look, if you wanna vary that appointment wait time maximum for the provider type a little, then that's fine. Like if you want it it to be 13 or 14, whatever it is, that's okay. But here is the maximum amount that they need to be waiting. Um, there's an additional state selected provider type that states can choose. So in addition to that primary care, the OBGYN, the outpatient mental health and substance use disorder, states can select one other provider type to implement these max um, waiting times. And CMS hasn't explained what those maximum wait time has to be, the states just have to put one in. And, you know, these, these standards are, are great, but how would they be enforced? 
Yeah, and I think that that's a really great segue to the last point here about secret shoppers. You're right, because these enrollees are going to just have to call CMS or this data managed care plan to complain. And that's not really the best way to enforce these standards, nor is there a great way to figure out what's wrong with the provider directory. So CMS decided that the best way to enforce this is to have these secret shopper surveys. And what they're going to be asking for, particularly with these appointment wait times, is a 90% compliance when a secret shopper survey is being done. And so how a secret shopper survey works, if for those who aren't quite familiar with those, it's basically a third independent party that's not affiliated with the state, that's not affiliated with the managed care organization, is going to call around using the provider directory. They're going to call and they're going to say, hi, I'm an enrollee and I'm trying to schedule an appointment. And they're going to find out from these providers how long they have to wait. In addition, sometimes these provider directories aren't going to be accurate. So what these secret shoppers are going to do is going to call and say, oh, well, this provider directory is wrong. And they're going to have to let the state, the managed care organization know so that they can fix those things. And apologies if I missed this. Who, who would actually be running the secret shopper programs? It's CMS explained it in saying that these are going to be independent entities from the state Medicaid agency or the managed care plan. They had in their proposed rule that it's, an, it's independent if it's not part of the agency, if it's not part of the MCO, or it's not owned or controlled by any of these managed care plans. So I, I believe there's kind of third-party agencies out there that can do these things. But it's going to be interesting who they choose and how these are going to be implemented. CMS has admitted that trying to start up a secret shopper program from scratch is going to be a significant undertaking. And so we're going to see if CMS is going to back off and how they want to do this. Because one of the requirements that CMS is asking for is that when a secret shopper validates these provider directory data, they're going to have to let the state or the managed care plan know within three business days of receipt. And these plans are going to have to figure out a way to update these provider directories. And maybe when this first starts, there's going to be a lot of information that are wrong. And that's going to be a lot for the managed care plans to figure out and be able to implement them immediately. As kind of a one last note to that point, just to make it more transparent, as Kyle has mentioned about transparency for fee-for-service, the transparency here is that these results of the secret shopper surveys is not just for the states or the managed care plans to look at, it's actually going to be proposed to be made public. So the state will have to publish these secret shopper surveys. And, you know, transitioning to kind of the ramifications of this, you mentioned the 90% compliance threshold. What, what are the replications of falling below that? For this particular one, CMS is going to require that a remedy plan be made when an issue is identified. And interestingly enough, this remedy plan, which is a 12-month plan, has to be done and um, submitted to CMS within 90 calendar days of when the state is aware of the issue. And if CMS doesn't believe that that issue can be resolved in 12 months, they're going to, they can actually request the state to continue that plan for another 12 months. Interestingly enough, CMS doesn't believe this remedy plan should be on the MCO alone. 
meaning that CMS believes that the state should also take responsibility when a managed care plan can't meet the network adequacy standard. And to kind of prove that point, CMS wrote in their proposed rule that sometimes the state should be responsible in changing the scope of practice law and joining interstate compacts to enable more providers to practice. And so that's a really interesting idea that's being implemented here because it's not the CMS is not viewing the managed care plans on their own individual entity, but they're seeing this cooperative arrangement between the states and the managed care plans as having to work together to ensure that there is adequate network. So one of the, the interesting trends and I think questions in relation to network adequacy is the rise in, in telehealth. How has CMS addressed telehealth as part of network adequacy? Interesting enough, I think CMS is almost not considering telehealth. And I say this because CMS wrote in their proposed rules, believing that most care is now provided by in-person rather than telehealth. In fact, they cited at least one study where they saw care level, in-person level of care to be at near pre-pandemic level. So weirdly enough, despite the rise of telehealth and despite telehealth being an important part, especially when CMS is requiring provider directories to include which providers have telehealth services, CMS is prohibiting managed care plans from meeting these appointment times, wait time standards with telehealth appointments alone. So what that means is in order for these 90% compliance to be done, you can only count telehealth providers if they're providing an in-kind in-person appointment. And so the idea that CMS seems to be pushing here is, look, telehealth is not yet the great future we're all thinking it was from COVID-19. Enrollees still want in-person. And so these appointment wait time standards reflect what they believe enrollees want, which is in-person care. And so CMS is warning the states to balance telehealth, but also remember that in-person care is, is still a significant responsibility that they need to be involved with. Well, these are certainly some, some major potential changes and would usher in a new era in, in both fee-for-service and, and managed care. Kyle and, and Sammy, I, I can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise on this. W would either of you like to offer some final thoughts or predictions as to what happens next year? I'll go first, and I'm going to be interested to see how this network adequacy pans out in maybe five to 10 years. Like I mentioned, CMS seems to change quite often what they believe the appropriate network adequacy is. And so I think for the viewers out there, it's important to think about what exactly is network adequacy? What does it mean to have enough provider? What does it mean to appropriately wait? Like if you're in an emergency room and you're waiting four hours versus 10 minutes, how can you distinguish that? How can you say which one is better? Obviously, going to see a provider is earlier is better, but at what point do you balance that with the number of providers there are, especially during a provider shortage? And so it's going to be really important for CMS to think much more carefully exactly how they want to form these network adequacy standards and try to keep it to one place. Because with these varying kind of flip-flopping rules, it's hard for states and even patients to figure out what exactly it means for them to expect a certain provider to be there. And I would just add that CMS's push now to comparing 
Medicaid rates against Medicare rates could mark a significant shift, uh, particularly if they're using those ratios to determine whether rates meet access standards. So I think that that's something to look out for. I would also encourage any uh, stakeholders who want to submit comments on these proposed rules to do so at regulations.gov by the deadline, which is July 3rd. Fantastic closing thoughts. Certainly, uh, proposed rules that we'll all be following will affect anyone that, that practices in this area or represents clients potentially affected by this. Kyle Brierly, Sammy Chang, thank you so much for, for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you to everyone listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Voices in Health Law. And now, a word from our sponsors. The Health Law section would like to thank our premier sponsors for making today's podcast possible. Five-star premier sponsor, AAA, four-star premier sponsors, BRG and BMG Health, and three-star premier sponsors, Pinnacle Health.